A brief note before this week's pod. We recorded our conversation about all the ways President Trump is really just a wannabe fascist dictator. And then over the weekend, news broke and is continuing to develop that the Trump administration was briefed in February on intelligence that Russia had paid a bounty to the Taliban to kill American soldiers. And neither Trump nor his administration did anything to punish Russia or its dictator, Vladimir Putin. Rather, he even tried to invite Putin back into the G7 summit, as well as for a meeting at the White House. Trump has, of course, denied being briefed, despite proof that it was in his daily briefing in late February. But since he doesn't bother to read those, it's possible he did not know. However, it's more likely he just didn't care. Either way, there's no excuse that this administration knew and still did nothing. So our conversation about the dangers of having Trump in office, along with a very complicit GOP, is even more pertinent in light of this developing investigation, even though we do not outright discuss it. Enjoy. If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us on Estate Sale. I am Lori Lattimore-Volkman. I'm Brad Rayleigh. This week, we are joined by Dr. Troy Paddock, a professor of modern European history at Southern Connecticut State University, to talk about why the President of the United States is, in fact, a fascist. <laughs> so welcome, Dr. Paddock. Thank you for joining us. Hello, good to be here. Thanks for having me. I actually want to start. I had made a comment to you on Facebook, you know, something like, this will be appropriate because we currently have an administration heading toward fascism. And your reply was, we're already there. And so I think it would be great if you give us a little rundown of why we even throw out the word fascism in today's rhetoric and what it really is and how it actually is applicable to our current sure. administration. In political debate, if you call somebody a fascist, they can't really respond to it. It's like calling somebody you know, racist or Marxist or communist or fascist. It's, just, it's designed to shut down conversation. Um, I'm a historian of modern Germany. So for me, fascism means something um, in particular. It's a, it's a style of political rule that was prevalent in Italy in Germany, and there were fascist movements in other European nations. And there was even a little bit of mini fascism in the United States, as Brad probably knows, sort of in the 20s and 30s. Fascism, you know, as a political movement has certain characteristics. It's defined by a cult of the leader. You know, in Italy, it was Mussolini el Duce, and in, obviously in Germany, it was Hitler de Führer. The leader is always right, and really he is, in theory, sort of the embodiment of the spirit of the nation. When you listen to Trump, you know, he, he very much embodies that. You know, his, his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention was chilling. You know, when he stands up there after this, you know, listing what he called sort of the American carnage, I alone can fix it. You know, Trump's demand of personal fealty. He doesn't demand loyalty because loyalty is a two-way street. It's fealty because you, you need to be loyal to him. And as long as you're useful to him, he'll be loyal to you. But as soon as you have outlived your usefulness, he'll throw you under the bus. He likes to go out to these rallies because he has these adoring crowds, you know, shouting his name, laughing at his jokes. It's 
scary. Rallies that we've had in the last week have been a perfect example of this cult of leadership. Another aspect of fascism is that it's anti-egalitarian. It is not all men are created equal. There are clearly some people who are better than others. And you see that with Trump, you know, his covert, sometimes overt, you know, appeals to, to racism. One gets weary trying to keep up with the number of ways he will tag racist signs and symbols. And that doesn't even begin to talk about his treatment of women. I was struck by the fact that Trump does this curious little gymnastics thing where he, on one hand, is clearly doesn't think everybody's created equal, but he also tries to appeal to his populist kind of roots by telling them that they are actually better than the elites on the East Coast. Part of the anti-intellectual, but maybe you can exactly. flesh that out a little bit. But exactly, that, that is part of the anti-intellectualism. You know, Trump is trying to corner what it is to be a real American. And a real American thinks about certain things in certain ways. And this ties into this notion, another characteristic of an ethno-nationalism. And that's why, you know, and for Trump, the ethno-nationalism is white America. And if you don't believe that white America is the only America, then you're not a real American. If you think that, you know, you're not better than other, than other people who don't look like you, then you're not a real American. Right. You know, and that's putting it cruder than most Trump supporters would like to admit it. But that's the kind of rhetoric that he uses. You know, when Trump says, you know, the MAGA loves black people. <laughs> You know, that implicit in that is saying that blacks aren't a part of the MAGA, MAGA movement. You know, it fascinates me how Trump always gets away with that. <laughs> when he says things like, I love the blacks, or I love LGBTQ, or they love me. And clearly none of that is true, yet it goes off as if it is. And I, I never understand how that works. Trump is the id of the aggrieved white male. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 when he was running... I called him the affluenza candidate. You know, this <laughs> yeah. is essentially Trump if you look at his life. He was born into wealth. He was able to use his wealth to get away with anything because he could bully people. He never had to apologize because he was rich. He could break contracts because he could lawyer up and force people into these long, expensive court battles. So he's never had to say he's sorry. He's never learned humility. He gets away with saying things that so many people wish they could say, but know they'd get their ass kicked or lose their job or, or something else. And so I, th I think they like that. Troy, you listed cult of the leader, anti-egalitarianism, ethno-nationalism. And th there is that anti-intellectualism. Man, that's, that is right there. There's also this aggrieved past, you know, that they're going to right the wrongs. You know, in, in Italy, Mussolini complained about Italy not getting its fair share out of the First World War because they were on the winning side. You know, Germany complained about, you know, the, the arch conservatives would lie about the stab in the back theory, but everyone hated the Treaty of Versailles. They thought it was unfair to blame Germany alone for the war. And in the United States, you know, you, you have this sense of aggrievement, especially in conservative circles. They hated the Obama era. They thought he was weak. And they said, you know, disaster at home and we're not respected abroad. So, you know, he was the one who was going to make America great again. That's what that means. Sort of this, you know, return to this ideal state. His entire campaign slogan is all built on that. The past is better. Our white yeah. nationalist past is much better. Yeah. And I'm curious about that, too. I think it was uh, Wood Woodward's book uh, where Gary Cohen, you know, the, the first economic advisor, 
um, was always having these battles with Trump where Trump was saying, I want to bring back factories. I want to bring back uh, those kinds of, of jobs, which, of course, Trump himself has never had. Promised he'd bring the coal miner jobs back and all that out. What Gary Cohen was arguing, kept saying, look, Americans don't really like working in a factory. No one really likes working in a factory. If they can make a good wage in a service industry job, they'll do it. That's not what they're upset about. You, you're trying to push people back into factory jobs, and they don't actually want that. You know, they really want good-paying jobs. And Trump clearly had this romantic image of, you know, people with their lunch pail going off to the factory. <laughs> I'm, I'm scared to try to imagine what is in Trump's mind. <laughs> there were two more points about fascism that I think are worth talking about, and, and they, they sort of tie together. Violence and propaganda. And fascism likes violence. In Mussolini, you had the Squadristi, and with the Nazis, you had the SA, the brown shirts. And they would literally start fights in the street. Of course, Hitler would complain about the government not being able to keep order. Meanwhile, his people were causing the disorder. But one of the things it did for his followers was it's, you know, it gave the impression of vitality. They were young, they were strong, they were energetic. Damn it, they were going to do something. They were in the midst of a Weimar government that was just a dismal democratic failure. And another aspect is, you know, connected to this was propaganda. I will never tell anyone to read Mein Kampf because it's just, it's an ugly, hateful book that's badly written for the most part. But there's one chapter in the first book called War Propaganda. It's scary because it's, it's remarkably lucid and it sounds like, you know, advertising 101 and put in political campaigning 101. Keep everything simple. It's black and white. You are good. Your enemy is evil. There is no gray area. You never want to give your enemy any kind of credit or a point. Also, you appeal to the masses. You're not trying to appeal to the intelligentsia or to the intellectuals. You're appealing to the lowest common denominator. You appeal to the gut. You say it. You say it over again. 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 Yeah, and you can tell by Trump's campaign style and his last three and a half years in office, that has been his exact playbook. He repeats the lies over and over. It doesn't matter to him whether, whether people believe his lies. What matters is that he has now confused the landscape. He says his lies over and over and over and over, and many people believe him. His base will believe him. Then there's this whole group who... They just, they hear his side, they hear the other side, it gets confusing, they don't, they can't figure out who's telling the truth, and that confusion causes apathy, basically, and inaction, and so then they don't vote. And so he wins in that case, because yeah. he's just, he has just cut out a whole section, it's voter suppression in, like, the easiest way, in a way. Through voter fatigue, they're tired right. of the nonsense. Exactly. This is what Trump has done remarkably well by, you know, categorizing any adversarial coverage as fake news, yeah, um, he has been able to discount critical coverage of him. The, the media deserves a good slap upside the head. A because, lot of slaps. <laughs> um, because, you know, this, this whole notion of trying to tell both sides of the story and trying to, you know, say, you know, we'll report both sides and you decide what's best. No. You know, it's like trying to report both sides of the debate about whether or not the earth is flat. <laughs> right you're getting a little too close to home because the flat earth society is is like right outside of town <laughs> Seriously, how can colorado be home to the flat earth society 
Well, they get up on top of the highest mountain. All they can see is flat. It's just flat. I, I know I can't see anything else. It's just common sense, man. Yes. Example is, is reactionary modernism. You know, so while there's this appeal to a conservative past, that's the reactionary part. There's also this embrace of modern technology. You know, Hitler was the first politician to fly to campaign events regularly. He also was the first politician to understand the value of the radio. And he tried to make radios affordable so there could be one in every German home because he realized that if there was one, his voice could reach every single German. And Trump's equivalent for that is Twitter. Oh. And he does it better than anybody. It may piss you off, but, it, but he does it better than anybody. He's able to say exactly what he wants unfiltered. It's why even when the Washington Post does its fact checker on Trump, point out all the lies, it doesn't matter because Trump has already put it on Twitter. Millions have, have seen this. And even the few who will see the fact check won't believe it, but most people won't even see the fact check. I mean, yeah. And, and the best example of that, by the way, is the virus as a hoax. Even when Trump himself changed his tone, you know, he, he sort of briefly walked a, away from that and was concerned about the virus, and yet he had already put that out there, and so there were so many people who were still talking, and they still are talking about it, like it's a hoax, like it's not there. It's going to go away. The summer is going to heat it up, and the sun's <laughs> going to kill it, right? One of the questions I've asked everybody we've talked to on this podcast is kind of the, the how do we get here? Because I, I'm, I'm of a mind that, that uh, Trump has revealed more about American politics than he's introduced. I'm thinking, oddly enough, of, of people like Sarah Palin, parts of this, not all of it, grieved past propaganda, complete denial of reality, anti-intellectualism, anti-egalitarianism, cult of the leader. Palin was a VP candidate too, so it, it right. doesn't really work the same way. I, I think you're right. Trump is not a creator. He's, sort of, he's more of a product. Part of that is, is a divided polity. So to me, it became apparent during the era. I think Republicans were resentful of Clinton being elected in that three, in that three part, three party race. Because remember, Ross Perot yeah. sort of played spoiler, and I think a lot of Republicans resented him. Um, you know, he he came from a, a you know a poor background, um, and his um, infidelities were well known. <laughs> and remember, this was back when character mattered. But you still, you know, Gingrich was able to work with Clinton. Ted Kennedy work with George W. Bush with No Child Left Behind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not talking about sort of the merits of any of the policies, right. but more the fact that you could see Democrats and Republicans working together. To me, the most astounding thing about it, and really the polarization was with the election of Obama. Because when Obama's being sworn in, you have Mitch McConnell and others meeting saying, we're going to make this man a one-term president. They wouldn't give him anything. From my perspective, Obama's strategic mistake was thinking, you know, well, if I come, if I present something that's using some of their ideas, they'll see I'm being reasonable and want to work with me. You know, Obamacare came from a Republican governor. You know, that was Romney's pitch in Massachusetts. And, you know, and they made it sound like he was, you know, like it was the spawn of Marx. Kind of thinking that, that what we are talking about is, and we can go back further than obviously the Clinton years, go back to, I mean, you mentioned the 20s and 30s where we had Americans flirting with the idea of fascism. Even in the 1950s, even though we had somebody very reasonable like Eisenhower as president, the, the beginnings of that hyper-nationalism in response to the Soviet Union, some of those components uh, are there early on, or at least are there to be 
manipulated if the right circumstances are there. Once we got to Obama, like you said, that's sort of where that solidified. I mean, nationalism has always been a part of the United States. America, love it or leave it. You know, my, my country, right or wrong. I mean, there's always been that aspect in American history, but that's, you know, true with a lot of great powers. Things that make sort of fascism the most dangerous are sort of the, there's an irrationality to it, you know, complete willingness to lie, the willingness to resort to violence. You will find people, especially on the left, who, who will point out incorrectly so that the United States has always been willing to use violence, especially against people of color. And that's true. In the political project itself, it, it's just become moreover. I still got to believe that the, one of the reasons Trump won, he ran against the only person who was less likable than he was. Um, <laughs> I defy you to think of a person in your political lifetime who has been more vilified than Hillary Clinton. Oh yeah, no way. There, there's no one. Her negative image was already there and it was rock yeah. solid. And when you combine that with just a really lame campaign, and ignored, you know, those those key states that ended up costing her. And she did. She ignored them. I'm curious what you think about. Uh, it seems like that a lot of the West has experienced some of this same kind of uh, I mean, it, it isn't it, we don't have quite the cult of the leader in England, of course, but you see some of the same kind of reactionary politics. You see some of the same oh, kind yeah. of it, it, I mean, the pendulum is, that, is swinging to the right. I mean, you see it in Britain with Boris Johnson, even if he's a bit of a clown himself. But you see it, you know, in Poland and in Hungary, you know, and in Turkey, on, you know, in, more, in a more serious fashion. You know, in Germany, you have the rise of Alternative for Deutschland. And you have even in, you know, places like the Netherlands, sort of the rise of these, you know, really sort of um, xenophobic politicians who are much more conservative, you know, talking for a return to more... Um, traditional values. Part of that, it seems to be uh, a component of fascism that I remember reading, and I want to check this with you, um, that Hitler especially, and I, I believe Mussolini as well, were able to kind of, I think the term was to kind of, uh, to ameliorate class tensions by by heightening both, uh, you know, hyper-nationalism and also ethno-nationalism. And so the other you know, becomes a convenient scapegoat of, you know, you're struggling economically, you're not struggling economically because we're bad leaders and we've created a bad economy. We're strug you're struggling economically because of those immigrants or those Jews or those gypsies. And here, of course, Trump has done that with masterfully from the very beginning. Those Mexicans are the, the reason why you're having a difficult time. Oh, no, that that's true. And, and that is a facet, you know, sort of the flip side with Mussolini and Hitler to that hyper-nationalism was a really strong anti-communism. And this plays on the point that you might, that you're talking about. And what they, what they hated about anti-communism was the internationalism. Right. You know, this idea that, you know, the workers in Germany would have more in common with the workers in the United States or in South Africa or China than they would with the, you know, the bourgeoisie in their own nation. And so what they wanted to make the argument was, you know, that ethnic ties or what they would say, you know, blood ties those are the ties that matter. That class consciousness is, a, is, you know, for them a false consciousness. Right, right. And that, of course, was caused a lot of fear in the United States as well. I mean, that you could yeah. have that kind of, that that broke down those national boundaries and geographical boundaries and everything else and religious right. boundaries and everything else. And that's why you'll have a lot of Marxist scholars who will make the argument that fascism is actually just a stage of capitalism. 
Um, I'll admit I don't find that as entirely convincing, but you you can make a, you can make a good argument for it. I mean, there are certainly ties. Um, big, big business has profited under fascist regimes, but I don't think they're inherently fascist in and of themselves. You know, Hitler didn't come into power because of big business. Big business benefited from him tremendously, and that's why they supported the Nazi regime. You know, you cannot think of a major German company, whether it's BMW, Mercedes, Krupp, Siemens, Thyssen, all of these companies used forced labor, used slave labor. So, you know, they ben they benefited from Nazi policy. Cracks me up that, you know, Volkswagen was a Nazi creation. This desire to create, you know, a people's wagon, a people's automobile. I mean, one of the great ironies is that, you know, the Volkswagen microbus was sort of the symbol of the counterculture in California in the 60s. And of course, you know, it was a Nazi creation. <laughs> that There are a number of levels of irony there. That's amazing. I didn't realize that about the origins of, of VW. That's, I didn't that's, either. That's uh, I'm pretty sure the hippies didn't either. <laughs> right, right. Well, they may, have, they may have been stoned and just forgot about it. It's possible. It's possible. Which you're implying, it seems to me, uh, is, is that um, Hitler obviously made sure they were okay. I mean, so they're obviously, yeah. I mean, they, they benefit not only from his labor policies, but they obviously uh, benefited from his economic policy. There's a mixed bag on that, in part because Hitler drove economic policies towards a war, okay. towards, you know, creating a war machine. You know, and if you if you are seriously interested in this, um, there's a guy by the name of Adam Toos who wrote a book called Wages of Destruction. Okay. It's a 600 plus page book. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a it's a big ass book, right. and it talks about sort of you know the all of the myths behind behind sort of you know the, the, the Nazi economic miracle of helping to pull Germany out of the depression. One of the estates that's actually failed us in the United States uh, has been the the church. So one of the things that we've been talking a lot about is uh, Trump's manipulation. There was that fake image going around of Hitler holding up the Bible just like like Trump, and that wasn't you know that was a Photoshop thing. Could you speak to his his pandering towards the German church and how he used religion and religious imagery? And Hitler sort of avoided using that, but in terms of German propaganda, there was a ton of it. If you've ever watched the opening of Triumph of the Will, um, the opening scene is is amazing. It's off, you know, after Germany's crucifixion, you know, you know, saying, you know, what, how many years after Germany's crucifixion, meaning the loss in World War One, then they talk about its rebirth with the rise of the National Social. You know, Adolf Hitler comes, and they have Hitler flying on a plane out of the clouds, <laughs> sailing down into Nuremberg, and you see the shadow of the plane on this on the ground, and it looks like a cross. You know, they really have this imagery of Hitler as sort of an Aryan Christ. Joseph Goebbels was a big fan of Catholic liturgy. You know, he loved the pomp and circumstance. And if you look at sort of some of these rallies, they look like high mass uh. in terms of the uniforms, the banners, the standards. Mm -hmm. It follows that kind of same processional movement that, you know, in, from a mass psychology perspective, this idea that you're part of this group, you're part of something bigger mm. has got to be really powerful. You're saying that actually, while the German propaganda machine was very adept at using these religious imagery uh, to create this image around Hitler, Hitler himself, and I'm curious about other fascist leaders, uh, Mussolini, others, did they, what was their relationship with religious institutions? And Mussolini um, appeared to have a reasonably decent relationship with the church, but um, 
you know, Hitler's attitude towards the Jews was not one about of religion. And that's important, really important to keep in mind. Because if you look, you know, because, you know, anti-Semitism comes out of religion. The Jews are blamed for the death of Christ. But then the key from, the, from a Christian perspective is that if a Jew converts, sees the light and sees that, you know, Jesus is the Messiah, they are to be taken into the fold. Right. They, they are now one of us. They are part of the Christian family. And what you see over the course of the 19th century is the development of a racial anti-Semitism. And it's not that the idea that the Jews are a different faith, but that they're a different people. One of the Nuremberg laws, you know, is called the law for the protection of German blood and German honor. Oh, and Laura, you're going to love this. <laughs> Germans and Jews are not allowed to marry. Um, Germans and Jews are not allowed to have sex. No Jewish household may employ a German, a German woman under the age of 40. I think that was the age. It might have been 45. I think it was 40. As a domestic servant. And then the fourth aspect of that law was that only, a, only an Aryan or a German could fly the German flag outside of their home. A Jew could fly the Star of David. For me, the third one is the kicker. <laughs> you know, you couldn't apply it. You couldn't employ a German woman, you know, under a certain age as a domestic servant. Because here it's playing on the stereotype of the Jewish man as a sexual predator. And they didn't want him defiling, you know, the young German maiden, depriving of her honor or, even, or worse, impregnating her. But if you were an older woman and got raped by a Jew, that was okay. Right. <laughs> I'm going to switch slightly um, to the article you wrote about performing politics as it relates to sort of the media side of fascism. That article tells you how we got here. Because, you know, li liberals, you know, check their news sources. Conservatives check their news sources. And, you know, they have, they have everything they need. Exactly. We have one group looking at information from legitimate sources and one group choosing an alternate reality that's being sold to them through Trump and his right-wing media. Jon Stewart has been making the talk show rounds since he just released a movie, but he's also talked a lot about this phenomenon and how ill-equipped the news media is to do its job as the fourth estate, you know, the, the watchdog of the government. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, not all of them are Trump's fault, but... One of the main reasons is the president and his constant fake news, fake news, fake news. The key for sort of, you know, liberal political discourse to be successful is you debate ideas. Right. In order to debate ideas, there have to be at least certain assumptions or ground rules that are common, that right. are accepted. And there, there are none now. You know, when Kellyanne Conway can come on and say, well, we have alternative facts... No. If you have new information you can bring, fine, bring in the new information and, you know, when we can see what happens. But, you, you know, I'm sorry, you can't make shit up and say that those are facts. <laughs> you would think, but that's what they've been doing yeah, for three I, and a I half think... years. You know, what I'm going to say is, you know, shit that's being made up, they're going to say are the facts. And what I think are the facts, they're going to say is shit being made up. Right. Right. And so when you can't agree on the facts, you know, what's, what's, what's the starting point? Exactly. I mean, we've been doing it the entire time of Trump's presidency, but it's even more pronounced as... It's older than that, yeah. Right. But yeah, you're right. It, it's worse now than it's ever been. And I think it's even worse in the last year because now we're getting into to a true presidential campaign 
with two candidates, not just Trump still running for re-election, which he's been doing ever since he got into office. We're having to have conversations about the different points of view. And nobody's starting in the middle with a certain set of facts to debate from. It's funny because Brad always likes to ask, how did we get here? And I always like to ask, what happens now? Let's hope we get Trump out of office. We will have a very angry conservative base that just lost power. We'll have a, a progressive side that will be relieved, but have a huge mess of a country to, to be responsible for. Are we going to be able to get out of this sort of fascist state that we have created for ourselves? Um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, historians as a general rule make lousy profits. <laughs> you leave that to the political scientists? Yeah. I just want somebody to say it's going to be okay because I'm not sure it's going to be. No, I'm not either. You know, what what I would really like to see happen, but I don't think it will, is for there to be an honest, independent examination of what I am pretty certain are the crimes of the Trump administration. And those need to be laid bare. You can have legitimate disagreements over tax policy. You can have legitimate disagreements over immigration policy. You can have legitimate disagreements over a woman's right to choose. Those are... Hot button issues, I get that. And people sincerely have different beliefs. But you cannot deny, no matter what your beliefs are, that this man was a crook. This man broke the law on a number in a number of ways, and that should not be acceptable. If you can have that kind of reckoning, then maybe you start you can try to pick up the pieces and figure out how to recreate a public discourse instead of people shouting names at each other. There is no reckoning. No, there's deliberate avoidance. <laughs> and fairly transparent. I'm amazed sometimes at what these what these people will do. The brazenness is stunning. It is. The rule of law has gone out the window. I mean, it's not even like a phrase we can attribute to our government anymore. It's insane. You know, Trump has said this, and we go back to fascism, that he that he is above the law. And he basically thinks that his will should be law. One question on that again because i'm i'm always kind of thinking that like i said that i think we've seen aspects of this uh nixon on other elements i mean he's he said you know when the president does it it's not a crime you wouldn't say nixon was a fascist would you no i i wouldn't you know he, you know he broke the law but even he stepped down when he realized you know this was that he had no alternative whereas you know trump you know, when things started to look a little bad, deliberately started bullying candidates. I mean, and this is this aspect of that cult of the leader that Nixon, that Nixon really never had. You know, Nixon was certainly the leader of the Republican Party at his time, but he, you know, and he would you know, try to strong arm people to vote for legislation that was important to him. If you look at what, you know, Trump did with someone like, you know, Jeff Flake, um, was it Justin, Justin Amar, the Michigan rep? Yeah. And there are a couple of other people who have, you know, who dared to defy him in public, he has crucified them. You know, he, he, you know, he forced Flake, who people once thought had sort of a bright future in politics, essentially out of politics. One of my professors would always say that, you know, LBJ, when he got mad at people, when journalists crossed him or something like that, he'd call him up in the middle of the night and just curse at him. There's a famous one of him calling the head of, of CBS uh, like at midnight uh, saying, are you trying to fuck me? Nixon would, would call the IRS and have you audited. I mean, so he, he, was a, he was a vindictive sort in that way. Clear, there's a real difference in Nixon. For one thing, we can point to actual policy he did that actually was beneficial. Actual foreign policy that was actually 
not terrible. You know, opening up relations with China, I think, was a right. good thing. Trump doesn't need the IRS and he doesn't need the midnight phone call. He just does in the press conference and calls it fake news, which is ultimately worse. And even supports violence against journalists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he clearly, <laughs> clearly <laughs> thought that that bone sign uh, Khashoggi to death was uh, perfectly OK. I mean, because yeah. he was Muslim and he was a journalist. Uh, I was thinking, by the way, Troy, when you were listing the, the attacks on individuals who stood up to him, one of the more glaring and bizarrely pathetic ones is Jeff Sessions, who, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see even after the Tulsa disaster, even after Trump has endorsed his opponents, has mocked him in the Alabama Senate race, Jeff Sessions is still sucking up to him. Still, actually, it, it's, it's one of the more stunning. I'm like, holy crap. Well, I'm sorry, but I, I think Lori's um, a citizen of of the greatest suck-up to Trump with <laughs> Lindsey Graham. Oh, yeah. You know, Graham, when he was running for president, you know, characterized Trump pretty accurately and since then has become just his lapdog. Oh, my goodness. Lindsey Graham, he is the worst. When there are headlines every now and then that he's talking tough on Trump or he doesn't like what Trump just said. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> Tomorrow there'll be one where he totally kisses up to him, as he just did you know, with the investigation of Obama's yeah. aides. Steve, who ran McCain's campaign, probably the best assessment of Lindsey Graham, that he's the remora fish who uh, hangs around the bigger the sharks and feeds off of them. And so whoever he perceives to be in power that act is, is right. what he's going to do. So he did that with McCain because McCain was, he liked him personally. And then he, McCain had a, a personality and a, and a reputation that he could kind of glom onto. And when McCain was gone, then here's this, you know, giant asshole. Trying to get, I'm trying to get my cursing up. I, I know, I know, I, I have not, I have not met my my uh, my quota. Yeah, late. well, you're getting closer. You're good. You've got a few <laughs> in today. So it's fair to call Trump a fascist. Do you think? I think it is. Yeah, I, I don't see how you can escape that conclusion. He meets the definition. Talked about discourse, and discourse is about is about this idea of, of talking about ideas or how we communicate about political issues. There's a whole lot of people who actually, as much as we talk about them being in their own kind of political ecosphere, there's a lot of people who aren't in any ecosphere. Is that true? Yes. There are people who have very little idea of what's going on politically. They have an emotional connection to a party or an emotional connection. They vote the way their family has voted or whatever. We are seeing erosion of that base. We are seeing people... Even in the conservative white evangelical base, it's not a lot. I mean, it's not, it's not significant to the point that, but it's enough that you can see Trump responding to it, that he's nervous about it, so he has to go hold the Bible like a used condom. That was my line. Um, but, um, but, you know, in, in, the, in the steel bill, in, the, in coal mining, I mean, there, there are some of these areas where people are, they may be listening to Sean Hannity on the radio or whatever, but they're seeing their jobs, they're seeing their farms going there's a reality there, much like with what the virus is doing. And what I, I guess my question actually back to Hitler and maybe World War II just completely circumvents all of that. So there's no ability for the those people who supported him to come to have a come to Jesus kind of of see the the themselves be harmed by his policies. Is that is that, that a fair 
It doesn't work because by July of 33, Hitler has declared Germany to be a one-party state. So there is no opposition. But there were clearly people in Germany who didn't like him, right? I mean, they, but they didn't yeah. have a political voice. To me, one of the ingenious things that Hitler did was while he talked about creating, you know, what he called a Volksgemeinschaft, sort of a people's community, what made him so successful was the atomization of society. You don't know who's, you know, who's a true believer and who's not. You can't talk to your work colleague who you might know was sympathetic to the socialist and probably voted socialist when they were still a party. You can't talk to him because in the next cub, he might be a good Nazi. You can't go to your favorite sort of stamtisch, you know, your local corner bar and fetch about all that's wrong with the world because you don't know who's going to hear you. Yeah. When there's no place you can freely speak, you know, you feel isolated. And that, that, that made resistance that much harder. That didn't mean that people liked Hitler, but it meant it was really difficult to create the kind of resistance to fight against him. Yeah, and I really think Americans have been feeling that way some too. I mean, certainly we have the freedom to protest, but it has felt so ineffective because scandal after scandal gets thrown out of the news cycle or dies in the Senate, and it just seems like no amount of resistance ultimately does any good or brings any change. And I definitely feel like the pandemic and the Trump administration's complete bungling of the response, which exposed so much of their incompetence, even for his diehard supporters, as well as the momentum that the Black Lives Matter protests have garnered, is giving progressives hope that we can resist him and we can get him out in November. Hatred of Trump, one hopes that it translates into support for Biden, but there are a lot of people on the left who just don't like Biden. Yeah. You know, my, my son would call him the lesser of two rapists. <laughs> well. <laughs> and, yeah, and so when, you know, you, you hope that people will go and vote for Biden, um, but that's not a guarantee. You also hope that there won't be such wide-scale voter suppression yeah. um, or sort of technical difficulties. <laughs> but, you know, in, in the Kentucky primary, what, there, was, there was one polling center in Louisville, and it was that Jefferson County. Let's see. You know, when, when you have those sorts of um, irregularities, can we use that term? Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, there, there are ways to thwart. And they, don't, and they don't have to be that widespread. Right. They can be strategic enough because the Electoral College still favors Trump. I am oddly, evidently the optimist in this group um, because, well, because I, I, see, I see polling showing that some of the key demographics that supported him in 2016, he's losing ground in places in retired people. Uh, older white people who voted for him uh, have found his response to the pandemic to be... Uh, Oh, right. Um, you know, the 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 okay. Rust Belt is struggling. The Farm Belt is struggling. There, there are people that are 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 flickering. And I go back to another historian, Kevin Cruz. He keeps saying we have to remember these are not very smart people. Trump is really good at certain things. He's good at understanding what kind of gets that crowd going. But as we are seeing, that trick it 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 has a way of wearing people out. Except for Bill Barr, who is in fact a smart fucker. There's, there's my third one. 
um, he he is he is a smart guy. Everybody else in in there besides, I guess Pompeo's pretty smart too. But I mean, he he's not surrounded by very bright people, and he himself so dumb he can't even follow a briefing. I have to think is a is a market difference from Hitler. I think Hitler and Trump share a gift for understanding how to speak to people. He had a gift for oratory and a gift for organization. There's... He and Trump don't don't share that commonality then. <laughs> <laughs> Hitler was a more gifted orator than Trump. But Trump has that same sort of guttural appeal. Um, but Hitler did surround himself with a lot of smart, capable people. Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, there are times when you watch Trump, like, for example, just with the, the thing he said in, in Tulsa, where he said um, that he asked his people to slow down testing. His staff goes, oh, that sounds bad. So we need to figure out a way around this. So we're going to just say he was joking. Remember, he was joking. And then he comes back around and just completely, you know, throws them under the bus. Sound the last 13 centers. Yeah. Right. That's a political disaster waiting to happen because a lot of those centers are in red states. I mean, it's seven of those centers are in Texas, which if he loses Texas, the Republican Party might as well, you know, pack up shop. I mean, I'm not saying it'll happen, but, you know, that's, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's, that's not, that is not a very smart political step. Um, I'm not a religious person, and I think I've got a better chance of meeting God than Trump does of losing Texas. Brad is always highly optimistic about this. Yeah. It's like these pitches to ditch Mitch. I hate Mitch McConnell. I think he has done more harm to this democracy than even Bill Barr. But the idea that McGrath is going to beat McConnell, no. No, no, I, and I'm really honestly not making an argument that he's going to lose Texas. I'm saying that that's the kind of thing they would not go out of their way to alienate people in Arizona, they alienate people in Texas because, uh, yeah, I mean, after all, he went to Tulsa because he thought it was the one of the reddest counties in the reddest state. I lived there for 24 years, and he thought that was going to be a slam dunk kind of, you know, it wasn't because he had to win Oklahoma. I honestly, I share all of your concerns, by the way, about the Electoral College, about about voter suppression, all that stuff. I'm but, simply pointing out that there is some erosion in areas that he was actually really good at in 2016. This observation, um, I have a um, friend slash acquaintance from high school who's always been conservative, who now lives in Texas. And on his Facebook page, you know, one of the posts he has is, you know, Trump 2020, finally someone with balls. The, the thing about it is I think there are going to be people who will say that, you know, yeah, he made some mistakes, but he had the courage to do something. I think that is absolutely correct. I'm, uh, that's certainly what a lot of those people said in 2016 when they said this is somebody who speaks his mind. I think he will fight for us, all that kind of stuff. We'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, obviously you guys are hoping I'm right too. Um, <laughs> so that, that's, that's the oddity of this is that, uh, <laughs> you, you may disagree with my, uh, with my take on it, but you certainly wish I was right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> You always bring up the polls, and I'm. It's always encouraging to hear those, but I've stopped paying attention to polls because after 2016, like, nope. The next poll I actually pay attention to will be November 4th, and that's no, the no, last time. Probably November 7th. Let me just say, Troy, thank you so much for um, taking some time to to educate us about how awful our system is. <laughs> yes, thank you. It was a wonderful discussion. I appreciated your lecture and your article as precursors, but the discussion was wonderful. Okay, you're still awake, so I'll take that as a good sign. <laughs> 
It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.